from Kurtco Media. In my opinion, the DNA of all the Jeeps ever built, when I even see one on the road today, go back to those first three and those hands-on individuals at Bantam, at Willis, at Ford, that put that ruggedness, put that exceptionalism, put that versatility into the Jeep DNA. That was the voice of Paul Bruno, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with another episode of Cars That Matter. Welcome to our show and welcome Paul Bruno. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, great to be here, Robert. And I'm looking forward to talking early Jeep history with you. Well, Paul, I'm not going to embarrass you, but the fact of the matter is you're kind of recognized as the preeminent expert on the history and the origin of the Jeep. You have dug deep. And in fact, your recent book just out in 2020 is called The Original Jeeps, commemorating the birth of an icon, 1940 to 1941. Congratulations on that. But this isn't your first Jeep rodeo either. Your other book called The First Jeep was published in 2014. So I get the feeling that there's something that somebody needs to know about this particular vehicle. You're going to have the answer. The name of the show is Cars That Matter. We talk about cars that have kind of changed the automotive landscape. But as I got into your book, I learned that the car we're going to talk about today really probably helped to change the course of history more than any vehicle ever made. Model T, Fords, Volkswagen, Beetles, I don't care. Because the Jeep, as we call the various iterations of them, that car that was born in 1940, was instrumental in helping to win World War II. Without it and the heroes who used them, the world would be goose-stepping today. And that's not an understatement. I think it's difficult for younger generations to really imagine what was at stake back then. You go back to 1944, I think of my dad, he was 19 years old, blown off the deck of an aircraft carrier in the Leyte Gulf, which was the largest naval battle in human history. Later on, when the American forces occupied Japan, he was there. The only thing he had that really kind of as a lifeline for survival was a 45 automatic without any live ammo in it and a Jeep. So that's a great way to talk about a car that really, really made an impact. What got you interested in these things? Well, it all started back in 1999, believe it or not. So I've been at this for 20 years. And at that time, I was beginning to write screenplays, believe it or not. I live an exceptionally exciting life. So I was watching the History Channel, shock. (laughs) Nothing better. And they had on the big rigs of combat Jeep. And just before commercial break, they said the first Jeep was created in 1940 by a bankrupt car company in Butler, Pennsylvania. And the astonishingly short time frame of 49 days. And I'm like, what is that all about? So I watched after obviously the commercial break and found out that was basically the case. And I said, that would make a great screenplay. And it's true. These guys had nothing bankrupt, given this impossible task, all sorts of conflict, all sorts of things to overcome, the world hanging in the balance in May, June, July, 1940 with the Battle of Britain. So that's how I started pursuing it. And I started researching it. I worked on the screenplay for about 12 years to 2.11. We were never able to get the movie made despite a lot of effort. So around 2.11, I decided I really wanted this story to get out there. And so we decided, when I say we, it's my late wife and I, that we would write a book. And that ended up being the first book, Project Management History in the First Jeep. You said I've really gone in deep into it. The key that made the both books possible was a court case, the Federal Trade Commission versus Willis Overland Motors, Inc. That was actually done during the 
the war, where it's literally an ultimate deposit of early Jeep history. And when I was able to find that in the archives and all the materials that was there, the story was there to be told. And we told the first one, just the Bantam BRC in the first book. And then for the 80th anniversary, we decided to change it from a project management book into a history book and add Willis and Ford to the mix, plus the competition between the three through about May 41, because the first three Jeeps, the ones I mentioned, the BRC, the Willis, and the Ford, were all built in 1940. The more I found out about the story, the more amazing it becomes. So you really have a PhD in Jeep. And for those of us who have barely graduated from kindergarten, let's go back to the beginning for a minute and kind of set the stage. I was reading your book, some amazing stuff. And by the way, the first chapter is really a great primer on the history of American politics from Woodrow Wilson to the beginning of the war, World War II. It really set the stage and got me to understand that America was a very pacifist nation. They had very little military infrastructure. And I guess by the time 1940 rolls around, the Germans are fine-tuning their blitzkrieg, their lightning war, and the U.S. Army was still practically using mules and carts to haul stuff around. I couldn't even believe that. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And your synopsis of the interwar years is spot on. You had the decade to the 1920s where you didn't really have a major threat to world peace. So they called it the peace decade. We talk a little bit about that. Then in the 1930s, you just had this slight thing going on called the Great Depression. <laughs> That's right. But seriously, there was no money. They were spending the money on the New Deal, on domestic programs. The army was starved. So by the time you got to 38, 39, the American military was ranked like 19th in the world behind Bulgaria. And meanwhile, the clouds of war were gathering fast in Europe. The writing was on the wall. Swastikas were everywhere. And of course, then the Japanese bombed us on December 8, 1941. And I guess they recognized the need for a Jeep right before that happened. In the late 30s, especially in the infantry, and we document this in the book, they did a lot of testing on vehicles. They came up with a Mormon Harrington 4x4 for what the infantry was looking for. But through some challenges in the procurement process, to put it nicely, they didn't get what they wanted. You also needed a vehicle that could be used across the using arms, had that level of versatility, not only infantry, but cavalry, field artillery, ordnance. And so by May of 1940, the middle of the month, two weeks into Hitler's blitzkrieg into the low countries in France, they had a meeting at Camp Holabird, Maryland, with all the using arms looking at a vehicle that could replace the mule and the horse for transportation transporting small payloads and troops, and they needed something between the motorcycle and sidecar and a half-ton truck. And at that meeting on May 21st, 1940, they had nothing. Zip, nada, nothing on the drawing board, nothing in concept. And that's where they stood. Then the miracles started to happen. You mentioned three companies, and I thought a Jeep initially, I thought it was a Jeep, but apparently you're talking about everything from Bantam to Ford to Willis. So one of the guys at that May meeting in the infantry goes back to his office and the American Bantam Car Company, which would build the first Jeep, their representative, and the gentleman's name was Colonel Oseth, he goes back to his office and the Bantam representative is sitting in his window waiting for him. And he comes in and the short version of the conversation is the gentleman was named by Charles Payne, the Bantam representative. He says, I'm looking for Robert Howie of the Howie machine gun carry, which is documented in the book. We need to talk about vehicles. We think we can build one for you. And Oseth says, I'm the guy that you need to talk to. And so they came up in two weeks with a general characteristics they needed for a vehicle that would meet infantry's need, which was needed to weigh about 1,300 pounds, low silhouette.
silhouette, carry three people, be able to mount a machine gun, so on and so forth. The memo is dated June 6, 1940 exactly four years to the day before D-Day. That's amazing. A day, I think you said your dad was in the Leyte Gulf. So in two weeks, they came up with the general characteristics for a vehicle, and then the story continued from there. Let's put this in perspective for a guy my age. I mean, I remember when Studebaker was around, but that's about it. I certainly don't remember any Bantams. What the heck was a Bantam? The American Bantam Car Company was the successor to a company called the American Austin Car Company. From England, right? But they had an American arm, is that correct? Yeah. Little tiny cars. Tiny, tiny cars. And they built these tiny cars, the Austin 7, in the 20s, and was very successful in Europe. And Sir Herbert Austin in the late 20s wanted to bring it to America. Well, of course, he brings it right at the beginning of the Depression. American Austin goes bankrupt. Four years later, the company's bought by an exceptional gentleman named Roy Evans, who reconstitutes the company in 1935-36. They try to sell small cars late in the Depression. There's no market for it. So in the spring of 1940, the American Bantam Car Company, which was the premier small car company in the country, is completely utterly, totally bankrupt. They have nothing. And their only last shot to stay in existence is to get a government contract. They were doing the Hail Mary pass before they invented that in the 70s in football. So clearly the Bantam car company had experience building lightweight cars. And when you talk about this Jeep being a, you say, 1,500 pound vehicle? That was one of the bugaboos in the whole procurement. And I was a project manager. So Robert, this is a requirement you don't want to have developed this way. The Army decided we need something between this motorcycle and sidecar and a half ton truck. So that's 500 pounds to 2,000 pounds. So this vehicle is just going to magically weigh without talking to anyone that would actually build it. It's going to have to weigh 1,300 pounds. Nobody could build a vehicle for 1,300 pounds. No one. That's unthinkable. I mean, unless it's a Lotus Super 7 or something, the Nazis were building their Kubelwagens, those 10 cans, and those things weighed 2,000 pounds apiece. Exactly. So the weight requirement was a real issue for all the three manufacturers throughout the procurement. But what happened was they put a thing on the June 6th memo for armored face shielding. And why did they do that? Oh, Seth basically says, I was upset at the quartermaster and I didn't want the quartermaster to procure this vehicle, which is what the quartermaster does. So by putting that requirement in, it would go to the ordinance committee. So it went over to ordinance in mid-June and ordinance said, you know, we have absolutely no clue how to procure or build a vehicle. Let's go visit Bantam and see what they say to do. And that's what happened. They went to Bantam and it's documented in the book those two days. And I just laugh and go, eh, nothing changes. 80 years later, I'm really upset at the quartermaster because they didn't get what us wanted last year. So we'll see if we can shove this over on the ordinance and see how that goes. What a great story. So it sounds like Bantam actually made a miracle happen. What you had there and you also had at Willis and Ford is 1940 was kind of the end of the initial time of the car industry. So you look at the car industry and we do a lot of history of that, both for Bantam and Willis. These people that started, say, 1900 to 1940, they were hands-on experts, built them themselves into the details of actually building the vehicles. They didn't sit in some office and design it and then have someone else build it. They built them. So at Bantam, you had these exceptional individuals that had cars in their blood and the same at Willis and the same at Ford. And that's why they're able to pull off the miracle, the 49 days, as it's called, with Bantam, where they basically hand-built it, reverse engineering it, where they actually built the parts, put it together, and then they would do the blueprints. And the 49-day requirement from the Army, that was another 
well thought out one, which was like, how long do we think we need? Hey, let's just do it in 49 days. And Bantam, they built their vehicle in 49 days and delivered it on the 49th day with a half an hour to spare. This is a great movie. It's more exciting than Tucker or any of those others. I hope to heck a Hollywood producer is listening to this because you got a blockbuster there. 49 days to build a car. So that's what Bantam was doing. But again, I'm confused because there were some other names that you dropped, Ford and Willis. What happened with Willis was Willis struggled during the Depression. So they were conveniently not bankrupt in 1940, but they were still not where they were the glory days back in the 20s. And they really wanted to get in on this Jeep stuff. So what happened was the Army developed the specifications working with Bantam from mid-June to early July. Bantam thought they would get a negotiated contract. No, they went out and sent the bid to 135 companies. Only four came to the bid in July 22nd, 1940. One was Willis, there was Bantam, and then Ford and Crosley. Ford and Crosley said, we can't even build this in 75. We can't build this in 49 days. We're not even going to bid. Willis put in a time material bid. The guy comes out and Bantam's bid was perfect. They had a drawing and I actually held Bantam's bid proposal in my hand. Butler, Pennsylvania, da, 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 da. And so Major Laws, who was the head of procuring vehicles at Camp Holabird, Maryland, which was the primary depot at the time. It's outside of Baltimore. It's no longer in existence. He comes out and says, well, Bantam and Willis, uh, Willis has the low bid and the Bantam people turn white. How is that possible? And then he says, but Willis can't build it in 49 days. They're saying with 75 days, Bantam says they can do it in 49 days. So with penalty, Willis is disqualified. Now, I tell you, I don't think Bantam didn't know if they could do it in 49 days, but they were bankrupt. What did they have to lose? So it's like, sure, you need it in 49 days. Thumbs up. We'll get it to you. No problem. We'll do it in 48 and 23 hours and a half. So what happened with Willis was they lose the bid, short version, the army contacts them and they cut this deal on the side, unbeknownst to Bantam. Willis, if you want to build a vehicle at your own expense and your own risk, we, the army are wonderful human beings. We will take a look at it and consider it. So Willis did that to their credit. These guys just marvel at the quality of individuals that were at Bantam, Willis and Ford. So Willis built their vehicle. They spent $35,000 of 19 40 money. And I looked that up recently. That's like $640,000 today. That's real money. So Willis got their vehicle in. Then Ford looking at in early October of 1940, they're like, the Bantam vehicle was in, but Bantam's small. We don't know how they may do. I was in government. I know you can have a little bit of a bias toward bigger firms, less risk, that type of thing. So the quartermaster calls up Ford in October of 1940. They come down on October 4th, 1940, having a meeting. And the quartermaster says, you know, Ford, if you want to build a vehicle and submit it to our specs and the things we're doing, we will take a look at it and give you a shot at it. So that's how Ford came in. And they were able to build their vehicle about seven weeks also. But they had a lot of lessons learned from Bantam and Willis that was kind of shared with them. I'm not going to say it was in a appropriate. It's just the stuff was there. And plus they were Ford. They had some economies of scale that would allow them to leverage that short time frame and the size of the company and the team that they had to work with. So they had a good team, a lot of resources. So Bantam delivered on September 23rd, 1940. Willis delivered on November 13th, 1940. And Ford delivered on November 23rd, 1940. So those first three original Jeeps, which are documented in the book, all came in 1940. So that's why we really wanted to 
put the story out there for the 80th anniversary. Tell us about the weight. So nobody can meet the weight, right? With Bantam, they hire this engineer because they have no staff. He comes to Butler, draws up all the plans in like 18 hours, and then they fill out the forms and he puts 1,800 pounds in the weight. They go down to Camp Holabird, Maryland on Sunday, July 21st and meet with Charles Payne, who I mentioned earlier. He looks at the form and he goes crazy. He goes, you can't put in 1,800 pounds for the weight because you'll be disqualified. This is a government procurement. You got to check the check boxes, Robert. They literally call up a stenographer 3.30 in the morning, they retype all the forms. And 20 years later, Carl Probst is recounting this. And he says, we put in 1,273 pounds for the weight. I go to the archives in 213. I find their bid proposal. I look at the weight box and it says 1,273 pounds. And I know exactly where that number came from. It was a moment as an historian going, this is the exact document. And he put in 1,273 pounds. We don't want to be too close to 1,300 because that might not look good. That was a great story. And no, you're right. You can't make this stuff up. Incredible. What do these things actually end up weighing? Did the U.S. government care what they weighed in the long run? They did. After a lot of going back and forth and the testing and in February of 41, I think they came up with 2,160 pounds officially. Willis came in at 2,159 and 11 ounces. Willis, they were right on the edge. I used to say, if you wanted to disqualify Willis, just put your foot on the scale when they're weighing the MA and they'd be fine. But I got to tell you this story. They're testing the Bantam in October of 1940 and these generals come out, cavalry general and an infantry general. And they go, we want to go out in this vehicle. So they go out, they get stuck. And while they're stuck sitting there waiting for someone to pull them out, they go, how much does this weigh? And Carl Probst and Charles Payne were there. So Charles Payne tried to start working around the weight to say, well, we're going to get it the weigh a little bit lighter and Probst is saying, well, it weighs this and that. And the generals go, you know what? If the two of us can lift the back of this out of where we're stuck, the weight's good. They go behind it. The two of them lift the vehicle out of where they were stuck and they go, you know what? Thumbs up. It's all good. Weight's good. Another one of those exceptionally scientific ways to decide something. I just love that story. (laughs) That is a fantastic story, man. You can't make this stuff up like you say. This is really one for the ages. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. So, Paul, I did a little bit of research on my own because I got so interested in some of these things after reading your book. And it's amazing how you connect the dots. They talk about six degrees of separation. We just recently had a guest on our show who's the director of the Historic Vehicle Association. And lo and behold, in the National Historic Vehicle Register is the very first Ford Pilot Model GP number one Pygmy. I guess that's down in the U.S. Veterans Memorial Museum in Huntsville, Alabama. What a remarkable artifact that thing is. Yeah, I think.
think that Ford sold the thing off in the 80s to somebody and they realized what they had. The Willis prototype was lost to history as far as I know, but the Bantam prototype, that was also lost to history. But the seventh Bantam ever built was called the BRC-60. That's actually at the Smithsonian in Butler, Pennsylvania is just north of Pittsburgh and they call it Gramps. So you have the two oldest Jeeps. The oldest first Jeep is the Ford Pygmy. Absolutely. And then you have Gramps in Pittsburgh also. And so that's like amazing. You use the absolutely correct term artifacts that you have for that. Now, one of the things I find interesting was I found the list. What happened is Bantam got a contract to build 70 if their pilot model was accepted. Their pilot model was accepted in October of 1940. They started building their vehicles. Gramps number seven on the list of when it was completed, December 7th, 1940. Literally a year to the day before Pearl Harbor. That's amazing. These things, I mean, they look like old, basically Popeye spinach can. They're so tinny and primitive looking now when you look at them, but man, they did the job. And looking at the little pygmy, the Ford pygmy, that's the one that has the kind of iconic grill that we see even on Jeeps today. It was sort of those vertical slats with the little headlights poking out from either side. Talk about an industrial design that's had some longevity. The Bantam and the Willis, they used a rounded hood early Early on, Bantam, because they based their design a little bit on what was called the Bantam Roadster. And then Ford came up with the flat hood, as you mentioned, with the slats, and the Army really liked that. So moving forward, and that was one of the things you had all three of the Jeeps documented in the book. They kind of were very similar because they were built to the same specs, which, because I like to geek out on this stuff, ES 475, we actually had that spec in the book, and concept drawing 08370 Z, which is in the book. I got to hold that in my hand. So they built them to those specs. So there was a lot of similarities, but there also were differences. And then after the first three were in, the vehicle evolved over 1941 to eventually the Willis MB. And the Army, to their credit, took the very best of all three, and so on and so forth, as the vehicle evolved and the testing went on and feedback was given from all the different using arms. But Bantam, they got it so right on the first time, though, they're pilot was universally loved from the beginning. Again, a testament to talent of people at Bantam, the four individuals, but also Willis's and Ford. If I can mention one other thing, Willis, to their credit, Delmar Ruse, their vice president in charge of engineering, they had an engine called the Go Devil. That's right. They had a great engine in that. That was the heart of the machine. So he said right in his testimony in the court case I mentioned that I knew you could never have enough power in a military vehicle. The problem was that engine was much heavier than the engines that Bantam and Ford were using because they were trying to at least ostensibly meet the weight requirement. I use that word loosely, but they got it done. And that was the big difference with the Willis. They had a 60 horsepower engine in versus a 40 horsepower engine for Bantam and Ford. And when the Willis MA, which was their second iteration, came out, they got the weight at a good place. They had that engine in it. They had a really good competitor. But I found in the archives, Delmar Roos talking about how they got the Go Devil engine improved and made better for putting in their Jeeps. And that engine was used in every Willis Jeep from the quad to the 1500. MAs to the 330,000 MBs that were built. So I just, I like to say, geek out on it, but that is great information. The guy that fine-tuned the engine that won the war, it's right in our book. The big question is, what eventually 
got made and who made it? Spot on, Robert. Great question. So what happened was by the spring of 1941, you had Bantam's third iteration of their vehicle called the BRC-40. You had the Willis MA and the Ford was called the general purpose, the GP. They did a lot of testing in early spring of 41 into the summer. In the summer of 1941, the Army decided we're going to go out, winner take all, sole source contract, 16,000 Jeeps. All three bid. Willis had the best entry, lowest price, and Willis won the contract. There's some stories behind that. But what I like to say to people is, as I looked through the documents and read the raw primary material, in the summer of 1940, the Army's like, you know what, Bantam, we'll get 70 of these. Let's go for 70. Wow, that's a lot. And then the next version, they give 1,500 contracts to all to 4,500 within a series of months from winter of 1940 to July of 1941. You just see the army at dawning on them the magnitude of the conflict they were going to get into. Uh, I think it was June 20th or 21st, 1941, Operation Barbarossa. So about a month later, they evolved from 70 a year later to 16,000. Eventually, we would build 600,000 plus Jeeps for the war. So that's another amazing thing you see in the story, the change in thinking that they really didn't understand in 1940, the magnitude of what was coming. And that's not a criticism, it's just a fact. Yeah, I read in your book, though, it sounds like Bantam got a little bit of a consolation prize. Bantam was able to build trailers for the war. What what happened was Willis won the contract. Bannon was basically frozen out. And this is another one of the stories I love. By October, November of 1941, this is not documented in the book, but it's talked about a little bit in the epilogue. The army realizes we're going to need even more of these than Willis can build. And also they were worried about sabotage and other things and bombings, which never happened. But there was actually sabotage in World War One at a New Jersey manufacturing plant. Speaking of your esoteric history, Robert, so that was still in their mind. So they said, we're going to need a second supplier of this. So they go to Willis and say, you know what, Willis, we think Ford should build these and they should build your model because we want to stay standard under license. How what do you think of that? And shockingly, Willis said, you know, that sounds like a good idea to us. Right. <laughs> it's like a godfather offer, you know, we're going to make you an offer you can't refuse. So that's how Ford was able to get in on the building for the war. And Ford renamed their general purpose, GPW, general purpose Willis. And they built like, I think it was 277,000 but I just love that story. That is really amazing. You said Ford called theirs the general purpose, the GP. Where'd the name Jeep come from? I don't think anybody can ever really know. There's theories. It was Eugene the Jeep. There's theories it was from GP, from general purpose. But what I found out later on was in the interwar years, the people would call a lot of different vehicles that would come into the depots, Jeeps, new vehicles, experimental vehicles for, I don't know why, for whatever reason. My best theory is, and we documented this for the court case, they spent a lot of time, and this was during the war, just a few years after everything happened, trying to find out where the Jeep name came from. And all they could conclude was, we don't really know because there's conflicts in the stories, but that they probably started calling these things Jeep. Originally, they were calling them the Bantam, the Willis, the Ford. They were known as a quarter ton four by four truck. So they probably started calling them Jeeps 
in the fall and winter of 1940 and then into 1941. And the name just stuck to the quarter tons, as they called them, even though they never really weighed a quarter ton. That's how they became known as Jeep. That's our best guess. If they couldn't figure out with all these people they deposed for the court case exactly where it came from, I can live with that. But that's the best that we have at this point. It's sort of like the argument about where did Uncle Sam come from? Where'd that name come from? Why do they call the old guy with the top hat and the beard Uncle Sam? These are one of the great mysteries. Paul, we have to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dreams. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkcocom slash a moment of your time. We're back with Paul Bruno. Your book touches on this very critical point in the genesis of this vehicle, but can you help our listeners understand what happened after the war? Where did the Jeep go from there? And how did it eventually become a Jeep with the Jeep name on the front? So what happened at the end of the war, Ford said, you know what? Eh, We don't want to build any more Jeeps. So they just stopped. Willis wanted to carry on the Jeep and they did. And they tried to sell Jeeps after the war with varying success. And what's happened to the Jeep brand, and this is in the epilogue of the book, it seems like every 10 years it's been bought by a new company. Around the mid 50s, Kaiser bought out Willis. In the early 60s, they changed the name from Willis Jeep to Kaiser Jeep. So the Willis name went out. I think it was around 1970, American Motors Corporation, famous as the two of us older people would know for the pacer. Put a little more glass in the pacer. Oh, and, and by the way, we got a gremlin out of the deal too. So uh, there was a whole lot of crap there, man. It's, it's like American Motors owned the Jeep. Are you kidding me? So then Chrysler decided to buy the Jeep brand from American Motors when they ran into trouble in the late 80s, I think. Boy, it's the smartest thing that company ever did because it's the only thing keeping them afloat today. Exactly. 10 years later, Damler buys Chrysler. 2007, 8, Chrysler, Damler has some issues. They turn into F FCA, and then almost on schedule 10 years later, FCA merges with Peugeot. The key to me for the story, though, is you look at the first three Jeeps on the cover of the book, and in my opinion, the DNA of all the Jeeps ever built, when I even see one on the road today, go back to those first three and those hands-on individuals at Bantam, at Willis, at Ford, that put that ruggedness, put that exceptionalism, put that versatility into the Jeep DNA, and that's what's carried down through all the corporate changes, all the other changes. They were really the first, some people say SUV, it was four-wheel drive, which was very revolutionary at the time. That's right. There's a lot of stuff in the book, literally detail of how they developed the axles from a company called Spicer Manufacturing, which was coincidentally in Toledo, along with Willis. And that became what we now know as the Dana rear end. So that's to me is the real legacy is how well these were built that 80 years later, you still see them on the road and still being 
built new. But more importantly, the vehicle lasted 40 years in service, almost 50 years till the late 80s. And military equipment goes obsolete very quickly. To have a 50-year service life, that Jeep was so well built and did what it was supposed to do so well, which you mentioned earlier, is a real testament to all the people in early Jeep history. And, and it's a real privilege to me, very humbling to tell their story. I wanted to do a little research and looked up something that the greatest journalist of the war correspondent, Ernie Pyle, who was actually killed in action, but he was the greatest American war correspondent by far. He wrote at the time, good Lord, I don't think we could continue the war without the Jeep. It does everything. And I have to give credit, a friend of mine, Steve, he found this book, D-Day Through the German Eyes. And in the book, and we put this as the ending to our book, The Original Jeeps, this soldier said, when we saw the Allies come on shore, completely mechanized, and that was very much due to the Jeep. And we, the vaunted German Wehrmacht, was still using horses and had veterinarians. We knew we were facing a mighty opponent. And that's just another one of those tests to what the Jeep meant to warfare in World War II and modern warfare that we ended the book on that. And you probably can't make a better movie either. I'm telling you, man, you've got to get this thing made because it is a fascinating story. Just the way I'm wired, I read the documents and I can feel the people in them. So when I found in the archives, when I found the court case and they had deposed all these people, I realized that you had the people just a few years after all the events telling exactly what happened. Now, as an historian, oral history, which this is what would be, usually you have- You never get that. Exactly. Again, as a historian with oral history, you have two problems. One, it can be done long after the events, so people's memories are not as good. And then, shockingly, this never happens except when it does. People might embellish their role and what they did, <laughs> so on and so forth, right. but they were in a court case. So they were being deposed under oath. So they had to tell the truth of what happened only a few years afterwards. This is exceptionally rare. So what I realized was my job is to allow the people that did it to tell their story and just tie the pieces together in a narrative. Now in the court case, and it's like 4,000 pages of documents. So I read it all. It came alive for me while reading what these people did, but it wasn't in order. So what we did with the book, is we were able to take all the pieces almost like a puzzle and put it in order, allowing the people who did the work, who lived the story to tell their story of the early Jeep history. And that was an exceptionally humbling privilege to be able to do that. Let's give a little bit of a fanfare to the two books that are available and tell us where our listeners can obtain those. The first place we have people go to is we have a Facebook page called The Original Jeeps. And I found it fascinating that you mentioned that your dad served in World War II. One of the things we're doing out there at the original Jeeps page, which is an homage to early Jeep history. But I had a couple uncles that served in the war and my cousin Nick and my cousin Gene, who I'm very close to, were the children of my Aunt Marge and my Uncle Nick. My Uncle Nick served on B-24s out of Italy. And my cousin shared some of the stories that his dad told them. And we're sharing those family stories out on our Facebook page. So we're really trying to encourage people like you, if you ever went out to our Facebook page, the original Jeeps, and 
wanted to post a little bit about your dad's service, that Leyte golf story sounded fascinating. They can do that at the original Jeep's Facebook page. My aunt served in the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, so we've got a couple whack posts out there too. So that will give people, including yourself, a little bit of a template that you can go by to post your stories. The book is available in paperback only at Amazon.com. However, for your listeners and anyone who's listened to any podcasts that I've done, for the same price as Amazon, $20 plus shipping, you can get an autographed copy signed by me, which, you know, in my humble opinion, what could be better than that? Nothing's better than a dedication by the author. Right. They can go to dispatchermagazine.com slash books, dispatchermagazine.com slash books, order it there. I get the information. I sign it and send it to the people and it's really, really good. So same price. Prices Amazon plus shipping. And then lastly, we have a website, originaljeeps.com, with loads of early Jeep history, things people can find out there a little bit more and get a primer of what we've talked about here today at originaljeeps.com. Paul, we're having this conversation over Zoom. And of course, our listeners are going to be enjoying the audio tracks, but I see in your background, you've got a very interesting image. Can you tell us what that is? Well, I appreciate you asking about that. That is a photograph that I downloaded from the American Battle. Battlefield Trust, which I'm on their mailing list and support what they do. The image you're seeing is actually from Antietam, Maryland. It's called Burnside's Bridge from the Battle of Antietam on September 17th, 1862. And I've actually visited there. I used to live on the East Coast. I was born and raised in Albany, New York, a place called Colony, literally 20 miles south of one of the 10 great battles in all of history, the Battle of Saratoga in 1777. And I used to visit those battlefields and I have visited a lot of battlefields. And I love them. The nature is wonderful. The history is overwhelming when you visit them. It just permeates you. You just feel it. It's a whole different feeling. Exactly. So the American Battlefield Trust originally was dedicated to preserving Civil War history. Then they expanded to Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. And so when I came up with a Zoom background, that seemed to be, given my interest in military history, that I visited many of these battlefields, seemed like an appropriate Zoom background for me. That certainly ties in perfectly with your interest in World War II history and the way that came to life with the first Jeeps. Pick up a copy of the original Jeeps commemorating the birth of an icon, 1940 to 1941 by Paul Bruno. Paul, thanks for joining us. It was an honor and a privilege to be with you, Robert, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I I, I don't deserve to have this much fun, but I appreciate you letting me have it. (laughs) (laughs) Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.